When I was 14, I watched an infomercial on a new total home workout system called the Bowflex. Anyone remember the Bowflex? It showed this guy in his mid-20s shirtless working out on his, this machine, and he was ripped and 225 pounds. I was skinny and 105 pounds, and it promised that in six weeks I could look like him. I showed my mom the Bowflex infomercial, and it promised her that she could look like this 25-year-old woman who was also working out on the machine. So we bought it. 20 minutes a day for three days a week, guaranteed a toned core and bulging biceps. We bit that lie like Adam and Eve bit the fruit in the garden. I lived 14 years of my life before I really started working out my body. And I hit it hard for six weeks. Then I took a short 19-year break and I just recently picked it up in the last couple of weeks. 14 years before I started working out my body. But it was actually 18 years before I started working out my brain. I was a freshman in college when I read my first book. I never read a book in grade school. I never studied for a test. I, I actually, I never did homework. I got my auntie to do all of my history and science projects, and my mother wrote all my book reports. She would purposefully spell words wrong, so it looked like I wrote it. So freshman year of college, that was a wake-up call for my brain. It had been lethargic and lazy, but it was placed in the metaphorical gym, and I began reading books and writing papers and doing research. It was intense. Ten years after reading my first book, I graduated with my doctoral degree. I discovered for the first time how to work out my brain. I'm still struggling to understand how to work out my body. Sometimes Sarah will show me on Instagram of some ladies in our church lifting massive amounts of weights, more than I can lift, and it's, it's always a humbling experience. I just slapped the phone right out of her hand, so I don't have time for this. Many of you discipline yourself to work out your body five days a week, whether that's through PT or gym membership or walking while pushing a stroller, or just the nature of your job requires you to work out your body. You farm, you landscape, you paint, you do manual labor. And many of you also spend hours and hours each week working out your brain. You are ferocious readers, downing books like my mom and I used to down cupcakes after our 20-minute Bowflex workout. When you read, you work out your brain. You take your brain to the gym. My daughter, who is uh, 10, 9, we have so many kids, I can't keep up with it. Her name is Everly. Um, she read 52 books over COVID. And I thought, man, how healthy for her, for her to take her little brain to the gym. Now, some of you hear that and think, dude, I'm in the wrong church. I do not read. How much longer you got here? Well, well, just by the nature of some of your jobs, you take your brain to the gym. There's a conundrum. Whether the conundrum is with a tractor or a spreadsheet, there is a problem that must be solved and your brain begins to flex its muscles. Those annoying complications at your job that make you scratch your head in frustration are something you should be thankful for. That complication is, is putting your mind in the gym. Some of you business people are having to do business totally different than you've ever done it before because of COVID. And it's frustrating, but for the first time in years, your mind is actually back in the gym. It, it was Bowflex that taught me that I should work out my body. 
It was freshman year college that taught me I should work out my brain. But it was a first century guy named Paul who taught me that I should work out my salvation. And I know what some of you are thinking, like, Kyle, you're losing it. Paul wrote, salvation is a gift of grace, not of works. That's true. But that truth does not conflict with this truth. Verse 12b says, work out your own salvation. Paul is not saying work up your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. Before I walk word by word through the text, I want to give you an overarching guiding principle. And it is this. You work out what God has worked in. Verse 12 says, work out your own salvation. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you. Two people working. Our work, God's work. And it's not a matter of synergism between me and God in which, which he did his part and I did, did my part and together we saved me. No. Is the Apostle Paul in this text telling you how someone is converted? No. Is he telling you how someone is justified? No. Is he telling you how you can be saved, born again, regenerated? No. What is he talking about? He's talking about how Christians become more mature. God worked salvation in. Now we work salvation out. And if he doesn't work it in, you'll never work it out. He supplied the materials. He gave you the salvation. Now you work it out. What God works in, we work out. He forgives us. We forgive others. He dispensed grace in us. We dispense grace out of us. Mercy in, mercy out. Verses 12 and 13 provide us with a wonderful starting point for understanding what we call in theology sanctification. Sanctification is a technical term that theologians and Bible teachers use to describe what it means to grow in your Christian maturity. And the verb work out is in the present imperative tense. Paul is literally commanding us to keep on working all the way to the finish line. Don't take a 19-year break. Continually work out your salvation day by day. This is not a flopping, passive response, but a very aggressive pursuit. Be active in your sanctification. And there are two word pictures behind the verb work out. The first picture... This verb was used in Paul's day for, for someone working a mine deep below the ground in order to reach precious gems. Some of your parents' parents worked in mines. The ancient Roman scholar Strabo, who lived 60 years before Christ, wrote about some mines that the Romans had in Spain. And he refers to the Romans as working out, same verb, working out the mines. That's the first picture. Second picture. This verb was used for a farmer working a field. In order to reap the greatest harvest possible, he would work out, same verb, the ground. An idle farmer who sits down after planting and wants little to do with weeding and fertilizing and guarding his crops should never expect much of a harvest. A miner who shrugs off the hard work in the dim light of a cramped cavern should never expect to find gold. So the lesson from the word pictures is clear. In your Christian life, don't give up as you work through the redundancies of planting and weeding. Don't stop digging no matter the cramped conditions of the cavern. 
Pursue hard the fruit from the field of your salvation. Dig vigorously for the gold in the mine of your salvation. Mining and farming. I haven't done either one of them. But I've heard mining and farming are hard work. So is sanctification. Mining and farming are also long works. You don't plant and receive the crops the next day. You don't dig and find gold in the first spot. It requires time, energy, and effort. And we live in a fast-paced, fast-food, microwave culture, but sanctification is a slow process. You can't take a pill or eat kale and automatically you know, be a perfectly sanctified person. You must work out your salvation every day by the grace of God. Now let me back up and clarify because I do not want you to understand. In your salvation, there is no element of human effort. In your salvation, there is no element of human effort. In your sanctification, there is an element of human effort. You contributed nothing to your salvation but sin. But you do contribute something to your sanctification. And that's effort. Now we talked about ways you could work out your body. Ways you could work out your brain. But how do you work out your salvation? Let me give you six ways from the text. The first one is this. Work out your salvation by obedience to God. Verse 12 begins with, Therefore. Let's just stop there. Therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you ask, What is it there for? Man, you guys have listened so well. Feel like a success. Paul's looking back at what was just said. He just finished singing a Christ hymn focusing on Jesus' obedience. Now he's echoing that hymn of obedience. He says, therefore, my beloved. The nicknames we give people are important. You only give nicknames to people that you really like or people you really don't like. I love giving people nicknames. So does our president. Mine are a little kinder than his. Sorry, people, you can laugh. All right, you can laugh. Uh, Tim Keller, I call New York City's Yoda. Charles Spurgeon, I call the Spurge. John MacArthur, I call J-Mac. Tony Morita, I call the Christ-centered ninja. John Flavel, I call him Flavor Flav. <laughs> One of the theologians in our church, Kent Shepard, who was just reading over here, I call him the Tattooed Puritan. The NBA great Shaquille O'Neal had the best nicknames. When he played in L.A., he was Superman. When he played in Boston, he was the Big Shamrock. When he played in Phoenix, he was the Big Shactus. When he finished his degree at LSU, he was the Big Aristotle. When Paul, a.k.a. the Paulinator, when Paul gives a nickname, it's importance. And he liked giving nicknames. And he had a unique one here for the Philippians. He called them my beloved. That tone is so pastoral. In fact, the whole tone of this passage is pastoral. Paul isn't saying, hey, you boneheads. I'm talking to you people in Philippi. No, he says, my beloved, notice as it continues, as you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul used to be face-to-face -face with these people. He's now 800 miles away. He used to be in their presence. He is now out of their presence. He even pulls up MapQuest and says, here's where you are, here's where I am. And Paul opens by commending the Philippians. 
Before he commands them, he commends them. And, and what a good pattern for making disciples. Commend, command. Encourage, exhort. One nurse said, I never command an intern nurse without a hand around her shoulders. In other words, I never command without first commending. Paul is not like a coach saying to a team that's not getting his point, oh, you knuckleheads, stop doing it wrong. Do it the way I told you to do it. No, Paul is actually saying, you've got it. You've done exactly what you ought to be doing. Keep on doing that. It's, it's like he stops in the middle of practice, he blows the whistle, and he says, yes, just like that. Keep it up. Now, let's pause here for a moment of station identification, a little application. Uh, sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, so-and-so's a strong Christian, but after all, so-and-so's not a very strong Christian, but after all, look at the church they're in. Well, so-and-so's not a very strong Christian, but th they don't get a lot of good teaching. Well, you know, so-and-so's got a lot of sin in his or her life, but they've really never been exposed to good books. No one's ever really discipled them. I heard John MacArthur respond to this argument once, and he said, I've met people in remote corners of the world who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, who walk in spiritual depth and maturity, but are all alone in a sea of paganism. Their love for Christ is deep, consistent, and powerful. Their testimony is pure and clean. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit of God, their ultimate teacher. And I'll often hear some of you thanking God for the stimulating theological environment you're in here. And that's good. I just want to emphasize to you that you can't blame any of your shortcomings on the absence of such an environment. The best Bible teacher in the world left the church at Philippi 10 years ago. He's not preaching to them anymore. He's 800 miles away. How will they grow in sanctification without Paul? It's easy to become dependent on someone else's spiritual strength. But Paul will not allow it. He says, I want to see more obedience in my absence even than I saw in my presence. You, you grow in sanctification by hearing the preached word and obeying the preached word. You also grow in sanctification by reading the written word every day and obeying it. Your pastors can't open the Bible for you every day. You, you need to learn to read and study the word for yourself. And these Philippians are obeying. Now, who were the Philippians obeying? The, their obedience was not to Paul, but to Christ and the gospel. Obeying the word requires effort. And I, I worry... I worry that some of you believe there is an effortless sanctification. And that is wholly contrary to the Bible. Often people will say to me, Kyle, I'm really laboring, agonizing, struggling in my Christian life. And I respond, wonderful. What an evidence of grace. Do you ever get exasperated by your sin? Do you ever get to the place where you find tears in your eyes because you're so sick and tired of the same sin? You're so sick and tired of fighting the battles on the same front. That's a holy discontentment that God produces as he works on your will. He wants you to hate sin, to desperately pray with Charles Wesley, take away the love of sinning. I don't know who told you it would be easy, but it wasn't Jesus. This is an ongoing process with ups and downs, forwards and backwards, mountaintops and valleys, home runs and, and strikeouts, 
all along the way. Eugene Peterson calls this the long obedience in the same direction. The long obedience in the same direction. Staying at it when the path of obedience becomes steep and difficult or even dangerous. But pleasure seekers, they'll, they'll look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take the quickest shortcuts. But God's people will farm and mine the hard road of obedience. When you say, I'm not getting drunk with you anymore. What are you doing? You're working out your salvation. I'm not texting you anymore. I confessed everything to my spouse. What are you doing? You're working out your salvation. I'm not spending money on this anymore. I'm giving it to God. What are you doing? Working out your salvation. You know, I've led a business for, for 20 years, and I'm, and I'm very successful. But I'm going to be honest with you. Not everything has been above board. Never again. From here on out, everything is above board. What are you doing? Working out your salvation. Sanctification requires you to be active and aggressive with your besetting sins. I heard John Piper talk about a struggle with a certain sin. Lust. And he said, there is nothing passive in my will when the lion of lust comes out of the bushes. I don't lie down and wait for a miracle. I do what Peter O'Brien calls continuous, sustained, strenuous effort against that sin. And I, I love you. You know this. I'm pouring out my life to you every Sunday and every, every day of every week. I love you. But some of you are strangely passive, victim-like when facing sins. You have this unarticulated sense mistakenly that the gospel didn't give you the power to overcome that sin. When you repented of your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior, He in that moment gave you the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. He gave you the ability to obey. Now I have six ways. And I just finished the first one. So we're going to we're gonna have to go a little faster. Second way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a direct quote from the second half of verse 12. To fear and tremble carries the idea of a reverential fear and a holy concern to treat God with the honor he deserves. It, it's a dread of offending God. Christians should not be terrified of God. We have found a secure refuge in Christ, but we should live in awe of him. This verse is not meant to this verse is meant to knock you down on your knees, not to make your knees knock. Work out your salvation with phobios and traumas. Those are the words. Phobios and traumas. What is he saying here? He's saying there should be a healthy fear in your heart of offending God. There should be shaking. Traumas means shaking. And by the way, I've, I've only done individual application here. But there's a corporate aspect to this text. Work out your salvation in community. We cannot grow as a church without you growing as individuals. And everything is better in community. Even when working out your body, it's better to do it in community. Bowflex was all about working out in private instead of home. At home. Work out at home in a little closet. Well, there's just something about doing it in community. That's why you have spin classes and Pilates and Zumba. That's why CrossFit has exploded. 
working out in community with accountability. Uh, one of our guys that does the panel after every, every um, sermon, he, he loves CrossFit, like honestly, half of our church does as well. And I always, I always tell him he loves CrossFit because they serve Kool-Aid and their founders are from Waco, Texas, and they live in a con. No, I'm just kidding. I know I just offended half the congregation, and I do not want to offend you. I want to know if I did. Please email me. My email address is danielherbster at faithfamilychurch.com. It's always better to work out in community, whether it's working out your body, your brain, or your salvation. Third way, work out your salvation with God's energy behind you. Verse 13, for it is God who, this is the second time we've seen this word, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Following the heavy imperative, Paul provides a comforting encouragement, reminding the Philippians that they aren't called to obey in their own power. This is present tense. God is at work in you now to change you. I love, I love the word Paul uses here for work to clearly make his point. It's a different word than when he told us earlier in verse 12 to work out our salvation. It's the same in English. Both words are work. But in the Greek, the second one is different. Here in this phrase, it is God who is at work. The, the word changes to energio, which is actually where we get our English word energy. God is the infinite worker, empowers you to do his work. And as one author put it, our work is empowered by his work, and our work becomes an expression of his work. God is the energizer. That energy is God's energy. That energy deep within you, God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. And how encouraging is just the tense of this verb? God will never stop working on his people. He never sleeps. He's constantly active. And therein lays the tension. God isn't going to make you open your Bible and study it. He isn't going to kick you out of bed and into a discipleship group. He isn't going to force you to work in the nursery or the kids' classes. He isn't going to going to make you save money to take a missions trip. He isn't going to make you testify of his grace to your lost neighbor. His work in us and for us does not eliminate our responsibility to him and for him. And yet, when we do work, it is through his energizing strength to do what is right. Which doesn't make obedience easy, but it does make it possible. When we desire to act, we understand that it was first and foremost his desire. When we accomplish it, it is for his glory and not our own. His pleasure and not our own. The idea that sanctification is completely up to us is inaccurate. Underneath our work is God's work. God is not standing back with his arms folded saying, you know, I've done my part, you knucklehead. I sent Jesus to live and die for you. Now then, work out your own struggle against sin and toward holiness. No. Paul tells you that God is at work in you. Why would he do such a thing? To encourage you. Fourth way. Work out your salvation with a sweet and hopeful spirit. I put it in the positive because I'm such a positive guy. 
Paul puts it in the negative. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now you guys know I'm, I spend a lot of time in the Greek each week. And so um, I translated this verse from the original language. I call it the Kyle Sharon version, which I'm more comfortable with. And it says, do some things without grumbling. Friend, I can do that. I can do that. Now, if you all know some, yes. Where did grumbling begin? It began with Adam. In fact, after sinning, the very first human being registered the very first complaint against God. It's that woman you gave me. Adam was the first complainer in human history. And it was the immediate result of original sin. And that grumble, grumble, grumble was picked up by Israel in the wilderness wanderings. The word that Paul uses here for grumbling means to mutter and murmur in a low voice. To express dissatisfaction. And just about every New Testament scholar and author I read, which was a lot of them because everybody's written on Philippians... Just about every New Testament scholar and author I researched in my study on this text pointed out the fact that this was the same word used of the nation of Israel in the wilderness. They grumbled because they were in Egypt, and then they grumbled after they had been set free. They grumbled when they had nothing to eat, and then they grumbled when God supplied miraculous manna. They grumbled about their leadership, and then they grumbled against their faithful God. They grumbled for 40 years. They were... The grumblers. And Paul selects distinctive words and phrases to signal us. When the readers of this letter read the words grumbling and disputing, what's the first thing they think about? Oh, same words, Israel and the wilderness. So we go from Adam grumbling to Israel grumbling, and now Paul's writing to a bunch of Gentiles in Philippi who are tempted to grumble. And none of us are exempt, including me. My wife tells me I could earn a second doctorate in grumbling. She actually, last night, I was grumbling about something in, in the kitchen, and she said, grumble, grumble, grumble. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm preaching on that tomorrow. <laughs> this is, th that was painful. The applications for us are simple and twofold. First, don't grumble in the church. Secondly, don't grumble in your life. Don't grumble in the church. You see what Paul is saying to the Philippians? Don't do that. Don't you do like Israel did. They grumbled against God. They questioned their spiritual leaders. And they brought about what? Dissension in the congregation. And someone might say, well, that's, it's just my nature to complain. Howard Hendricks used to say there are some people who are just born in the accusative case. The word disputing here evokes to our English-speaking ears petty dialoguing that calls everything into question. What I like to call it, is unbalanced criticism in small matters. Unbalanced criticism in small matters. Critical complaining spirits are the historic bane of the church, from Corinth to Kentucky, from Philippi to Philadelphia. And even more, we can convince ourselves that a critical spirit is a virtue. It's a good thing. Someone needs to have the courage to say what I know what everyone else is thinking. Don't grumble in the church. And then secondly, don't grumble in your life. Don't complain about anything in your life. I know what you're thinking. I bet he backs down off that statement in a minute. I am not backing down off that statement. Don't complain about anything in your life. 
And I know this isn't easy because of the culture that surrounds us. Grumbling is the soundtrack of our culture. Go to your average breakfast joint on a weekday morning and listen to a group of senior citizen men grumbling and complaining. Listen to CNN news. Any good news? Grumbling and complaining. Listen to Fox News. Any good news? Grumbling and complaining. There's a little song that describes us well and it goes like this. In country, town, or city, some people can be found who spend their lives in grumbling at everything around. Oh yes, they always grumble, no matter what we say, for these are chronic grumblers and they grumble night and day. They grumble in the city, they grumble on the farm, they grumble at their neighbors, and they think it is no harm. They grumble when it's raining, they grumble when it's dry, they grumble all year round, yes, they grumble till they die. Grumble on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, grumble on Thursday too. Grumble on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, grumble the whole week through. The songwriter is telling us it is their way of life. Listen, this happens to be the national anthem of fallen humanity. We are grumblers. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Stephen Davey, one of my mentors, just brings it down like he always does to just everyday level. He says, does this mean to cut our lawn without complaining? To do the laundry without complaining? To paint the fence, do our homework, make the road trips, slug through revisions and changes of orders and deal with people in your job who want to make you as miserable evidently as they are? Well, the fact that Paul never clarifies or describes the object of grumbling, it's evidently meant to be understood as comprehensive. Stephen Runge writes, Paul doesn't allow us to pick and choose what we do with a happy and contented heart. You do everything with a happy and contented heart. How do you maintain a joyful attitude in the midst of life's unpleasant circumstances? Two ways. First, view grumbling as God does. We don't view complaining like God does. Grumbling and complaining is offensive to God. It's an awful sin. Every time you grumble, you're saying either God is too weak to help or too mean and he doesn't want to help. View grumbling as God does. Secondly, view the things that make you grumble in the big picture. The big picture. Does grumbling ever help a person make it to the finish line? No. Grumbling makes us want to quit, doesn't it? Grumbling is the first step in quitting. Let, let's say you are out walking. You're, you're on a hike. And on this hike, you somehow miraculously discovered the fountain of youth. And you bottled up some of that water from the fountain of youth and you put a cork in it and you went to the nursing home to visit your grandparents. And they're doing what all of our grandparents do and we love them. They're complaining. So would you join them? No, you'd say, I found the fountain of, of youth. Grandpa, I know you don't like the food. I know they canceled bingo night. But I have the water of life. The single greatest impact you could have in this world could be a refusal to complain. What if in your current situation, you went back tomorrow and said, I refuse to complain. No matter what, I will not complain. When complaints are actually, expect, people expect you to complain. 
Grumbling causes us to lose our distinctiveness as a Christian. Or in the words of Jesus, our saltiness. Consider what an opportunity we have for making an eternal difference in someone's life simply by speaking a different language than that of our culture. By going through the day, avoiding the temptation to grumble and replacing it with the practice of gratitude. And people will wonder, hey, you, why aren't you complaining? And then that's when you hold out the living water. John Newton gives this little story. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. Huge estate. He's going to be rich. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which forced him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Christians, we must remember... We only have a mile to go. Soon we will see Christ. We will be with Christ. We don't deserve such an inheritance. So if we have to walk a mile, we can sing while doing it. What are you grumbling about that a good resurrection can't fix? What are you grumbling about that a swig of living water will not ultimately eliminate? Nothing. The fifth way. Work out your salvation before a world that doesn't know God. Verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst, that's the middle, in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The word lights there speaks of lights um, like stars and, and sun, moon, lights. Church, be, be a proclaiming church, not a complaining church. Grumbling and complaining damages your witness. It, even how you speak in your home should be governed by the gospel, should be governed by the hope that we have in the gospel. Will Rogers was a comedian author who lived in the early days of the 1900s. And he said that we ought to live so that we wouldn't be ashamed or alarmed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. <laughs> Paul says the Philippians are living in a crooked world. You are also living in a crooked world. If you don't believe me, let me introduce you to Twitter. Uh, let me introduce you to a Netflix show called Cuties. Let me introduce you to abortion clinics and human trafficking rings. Many right down the road. The word from crooked comes from the Greek word skolios. It means to be bent or twisted. In Paul's day, it referred to being morally, morally twisted. Now, we use the term skolios for a medical term, scoliosis, for the abnormal curvature of the spine. Some of you have met older people who have, who have had this, this abnormal curvature of the spine. And so this is what Paul is saying. Keep in mind that everyone around you has scoliosis and you need to walk uprightly. Keep in mind that everyone around you is living in a state of darkness and you need to shine bright like stars in a dark sky. Actually, this, this whole job, 
God gives this job out a lot. Like, you need to shine bright in the midst of a dark sky. You need to shine like stars. This wasn't the first time he's given this command. He actually gave it to Israel in Isaiah 42 and 49. They were supposed to fulfill it among the Gentiles so that the salvation of God might be brought to the ends of the earth. And the Philippian believers, as part of the newly constituted people of God, now have inherited that job, that responsibility, be lights. And if you've repented of sin and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you now have that responsibility. The final way. Work out your salvation by holding fast to God's word. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. If you're going to grow in sanctification, you need to learn to live the Bible. Not just believe the Bible, but live the Bible. And then I think verse 17 is probably just my favorite in this section of verses because I just discovered so many new things from it. Verse 17 says, if I am to be poured, if I am to be poured out, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering... Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now let's back up. Just as Christ poured himself, Paul is willing to pour himself out for the glory of God. He says here, he's a glad offering. Paul is evoking an Old Testament imagery, Old Testament scene. In the ancient sanctuary, the daily morning and evening burnt offerings were accompanied by drink offerings. Before the fire was lit to incinerate the slain lamb, the priest would pour wine over the sacrifice to enhance the pleasing aroma to the Lord. It would go up as it burned. And although both lamb and wine were consumed in consecration to the Lord, the lamb itself was central. And this is Paul's point when he now speaks of being poured out on their sacrificial offering of your faith. In effect, the Apostle Paul says to his Philippian friends, you're the main event, and I'm just icing on the cake. Then he blows my mind in verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice with you, Paul? You're in prison? Rejoice that you're going to, to probably die in prison, Paul? You want us to rejoice in this? Paul responds, if you don't rejoice in my gospel self-sacrifice, you don't get it. You don't realize how valuable what we have in Jesus Christ is and how it changes the whole of life. Whatever you do, he says, don't feel sorry for me. Let's wrap this up and bring it to a conclusion. Give me another 30 seconds here. We work hard at our sanctification. We work hard at our sanctification realizing we can never fully complete it. It takes the work of another. One day our holy and sovereign God will bring us home. And it is there where he will fully complete our sanctification. Body, brain, and salvation. And he will not need a bowflex or a book to do it. He only needs a son. His son, Jesus Christ. We will spend our entire lives working toward a complete sanctification. When we die, God will complete that sanctification and we will spend all eternity no longer working toward sanctification, but working from that perfect sanctification. You will never sin again. 
you will never stumble again. Perfectly sanctified you in the presence of the sanctifier. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.